listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored 187. In this episode, we're going to have a thorough debrief on the GM contract that was just narrowly approved with Sean Crawford and Ruth Milkman. But first, the news. When the Trump administration came into power, claiming to champion the interests of the forgotten American worker, many wondered what would happen to one of the key agencies that determines how labor and union rights are executed and enforced. Three years in, it seems that the National Labor Relations Board isn't just unfriendly to workers under Trump, it's downright hostile territory. A study by the Economic Policy Institute found that under Trump, the, quote, board and general counsel have elevated corporate interests above those of working men and women and have routinely betrayed the statute they are responsible for administering and enforcing, unquote. Of course, the NLRB isn't the only agency under the Trump administration to actively work to undermine the laws tasked with enforcing, but it's a particularly damning case study. The general counsel, Peter Robb, came in with a hit list of precedents from the Obama administration and has spent the last two years systematically plucking cases from the dockets of regional administrative law judges, specifically in order to overturn pro-worker decisions from the previous administration and slowly chip away the edifice of labor protections that have been built up over the decades of litigation. It's true that the positions of the NLRB often oscillate depending on whether it is a Democratic or Republican administration, but the Economic Policy Institute warns that the NLRB and General Counsel Peter Robb have inflicted permanent damage on the institution. Just a few of the greatest hits so far. In one case, the NLRB issued a ruling that effectively altered the rules for management rights clauses in order to allow bosses to unilaterally change a contract without negotiation, which weakens, of course, the collective bargaining process and leaves workers subject to arbitrary changes. It also issued another decision that enabled employers to coerce unionized employees to sign corporate forced arbitration agreements, which preempts workers from bringing class action lawsuits. Another case led to a rollback in workers' right to protest and engage in organizing activity on an employer's private property. The board has also shrunk its staff and gotten entangled with several ethical violations, all related to the corporate ties of the board members. All in all, the board seems hell-bent on working at cross-purposes with its own mandate. I talked to Celine McNicholas, Director of Government Affairs at EPI and author of the report. So the first uh, piece that I think um, is most uh, startling to me is the move to um, sort of instituting policy, not through case adjudication, but through the, you know, rulemaking um, actions of the the Trump board. That's something that, you know, the board has not traditionally um, undertaken substantive rulemaking. You know, they undertook a rulemaking to sort of, um, you know, modernize the election process so that people could, you know, electronically file and there were sort of standardized timelines and things. But there, you know, in terms of the policy itself, interpreting the NLRA, um, you know, what it means for, you know, working people, that has been something that the board has tended to do through case adjudication. And here you see, um, you know, the board sort of shifting uh, and doing far more, you know, rulemaking than it, you know, has in the past. Um, and in some cases, I think, you know, it's, it's fairly clear that they're doing so because they've got um, recusal ethical issues in, in getting those decisions out the door. But to your, um, you know, your question, the rulemaking, you know, you can argue may have, you know, have a greater impact. There won't be the, you know, sort of traditional, you know, take it to um, a circuit court of appeals to have them weigh in on the board decision. You know, I have no doubt that the rules will be litigated, but it's not sort of the same, um, you know, process that is familiar to, you know, folks who have observed, you know, prior boards. Um, this is something that, you know, it, it's, it's not something the agency does 
traditionally, I think the impact overall on, you know, what it means for, for workers in terms of, you know, getting these um, rules and their validity evaluated in the courts, I think like that could be um, a greater undertaking. Uh, and I certainly think that it just in terms of like taxpayer expense, um, all of this rulemaking is something that, you know, because it is not the traditional, you know, business of the agency, I have no doubt is taking resources away, you know, from the traditional, you know, case adjudication work that the board is obligated to do under the statute. So I think the rulemakings that you see, you know, coming out of the agency are, um, you know, uh, to go to the title of the report, you know, unprecedented, um, are, are really troubling, um, you know, because, you know, in, in part because of the substance themselves, because I think, um, they're getting so much wrong. Um, but, you know, equally troubling is just, you know, the process and, and getting around ethical, you know, recusal obligations um, by engaging in a rulemaking that's essentially on the same substance as a case. That's incredibly troubling, to, you know, to, to me. And certainly as somebody who worked, you know, at the agency um, doing, uh, you know, external congressional affairs, you know, it, it's it's sort of shocking to see the way um, you know the the ethical you know obligations are kind of being skirted uh, and you know through the rulemaking process. I think that's that's deeply concerning, and it, it should be you know concerning to everybody who um, has business before the agency. Um, so I think that that's one piece, and then I, I'd say um, the other sort of overarching theme is just a narrowing of the protections of, of the act. So uh, a narrowing of what constitutes sort of protected concerted activity, um, whether it's done, you know, in a traditional, you know, union um, context, or it's done, you know, just from a group of workers kind of speaking up, speaking out in the workplace. Um, and the assignment of, you know, new, uh, essentially new powers to employers. Um, and, and you see that in a number of the cases that are profiled in, in the report. But I think, you know, taken together, the, the rulemaking and the sort of um, constant uh, looking to shrink, um, narrow the coverage of the act, the protection of the act for, you know, working people um, is, is deeply uh, concerning and is, in my view, sort of the link between so many of the, the cases and the rulemakings, you know, and the general counsel's interpretation and advice memos, you know, of um, of the act and of its protections. I think that that's kind of the unifying um, theme to, to me, you know, looking at, at what's happened um, with the Trump board over the last several years. Do we see this already having a practical impact on the labor movement or on union activity? I suppose, I mean, people are just generally more reluctant to bring cases before the NLRB. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think certainly. And I think, you know, some of the um, the actions like uh, my colleague Larry Michelle and I did a, a report on uh, the general counsel's advice memo um, in Uber, where essentially, you know, there was a determination made by the office of the general counsel that, you know, workers, um, specifically Uber drivers, but it has implications, you know, beyond that for other, um, you know, digital platform, you know, workers, you know, are, are not covered by the act. Well, essentially, you know, um, because the GC has, you know, is responsible for prosecuting, for taking, you know, all of those cases, essentially these actions, I think what it says to, to workers who might, you know, want to file something at the agency, you know, or to their, you know, union representatives is like, you know, you're not even getting through the front door. Um, you know, if there's any way, 
to narrow that coverage of the act. I, you know, I think you see that in like the reaching to, you know, the it's like almost heroic, like gymnastics to reach the conclusion that um, is the desired, you know, conclusion. Um, and it cuts off, you know, the act. So I think it's to your point, like it's, you know, you're, you're, you're less likely to want to even put the issue before the agency because, you know, you're so concerned that that, um, you know, outcome that, you know, is going to be so bad and that the, you know, the, you know, I don't want to call it precedent because a new general counsel could, you know, easily, uh, you know, interpret things differently. But for now, you know, that that is uh, the law of the land um, because, you know, we are dependent on the general counsel to, you know, take um, cases uh, and, you know, get some sort of justice for, for workers. So, you know, certainly at, at the moment, I think there's a, you know, sort of a chilling effect of, of um, you know, people, you know, work workers and unions, like being able to get a fair, you know, shake at the board. Um, uh, and I also think that, you know, because there have been so, so, so many cases um, and, and there are currently like so many active rulemakings going on, I think, you know, it, it's almost comical on some level that we hear so much about uncertainty. Um, I, I think often from Republican board members and Republican general counsels and certainly Republican, um, you know, uh, congressional folks who, um, you know, weigh in on these issues. And, you know, there's just such like tectonic shifts going on here that there that there's you know, lack of certainty all over. The only certainty is that, you know, workers seem to be losing out in every, you know, instance, um, you know, that's a significant case before this board. And that was Celine McNicholas, Director of Government Affairs with the Economic Policy Institute. You all probably remember the miners who camped out on the train tracks in Harlan County, Kentucky this summer, and were joined by everyone from truck drivers to transgender anarchists in solidarity as they held out, blocking a train full of coal that they'd already dug out from being driven away. The miners were workers at Black Jewel, a company that suddenly went bankrupt, leaving the workers without their last paycheck. The mines remaining in Harlan County were non-union, but the miners still understood the power of collective action as they gathered to halt the last step of production until they got their pay. The miners had been told they were let go when the mines closed in July, but never got official declaration that they were laid off, meaning they couldn't get unemployment. Their last paychecks never showed up, the checks before that bounced. So they took action, held up the train, and became a national story. Bernie Sanders sent solidarity, Mitch McConnell, their senator, squealed a little bit. But now there's good news because the miners are getting paid. According to the New York Times, quote, in a series of settlements made public this week in federal courts in Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia, Black Jewel agreed to pay about 1,100 workers some $5.1 million in unpaid wages. $5 million sounds like a lot, but it's only a little bit over $4,000 per worker, not enough certainly to live on for very long. But in bankruptcy proceedings, workers are usually at the bottom of the pecking order, meaning it's rare for them to get anything at all. Miner Jeffrey Willig told The Times that he's hoping to find a new job that isn't in mining, maybe on the railroad or in fiber optics. I'm 40, he said. My body has taken a toll from hard labor for most of my life. I kind of want to get something that's not real hard anymore. I think our listeners would agree that he and all the miners have earned it. Today, on Friday, Chicago students and teachers are finally going back to school. After 11 days on strike, the Chicago Teachers Union finally reached a tentative agreement on Thursday night, negotiating the final details well into Hollow's Eve. And while kids are out trick-or-treating, the union was settling the final sticking point, how to make up for the school days that were lost to the strike. 
In the end, Mayor Lori Lightfoot agreed to five makeup days, not the full 11. The rest of the contract contains a number of key gains for the union, including 209 additional social worker positions and 250 additional nursing positions by the end of the contract. That means each school gets its own social worker and case manager. There's also millions in additional funding for recruitment, training, licensure for clinicians and nurses, and more funding for teacher development and English language and bilingual programs. There's also a $35 million annual investment to reduce class size, particularly for classrooms that are serving more disadvantaged students. There's also a greater investment in developing special education programs and reducing workloads for special ed instructors. This agreement comes shortly after the school staff union, SEIU, improved their contract. CTU President Jesse Sharkey said that the contract recognizes and values the voice and experience of Chicago educators, unquote. But he noted that it was marred by Mayor Lightfoot's refusal to fully restore all 11 of the lost days of instruction, which he said showed that Lightfoot was, quote, more concerned about politics than the well-being of students, unquote. That's a charge that you often hear thrown at teachers who decide to take action to defend their schools. When Chicago teachers go back to work, they'll know that politics and teachers' working conditions are sometimes inseparable. That's the driving ethos for their collective bargaining strategy, called bargaining for the common good. And after two weeks on strike, teachers can finally move from fighting for the common good in the streets to advancing the common good in their classroom. The journalists at WHYY, Philadelphia's public radio and television station, have voted 70 to 1 to unionize. That bargaining unit, we should note, includes friend of the show Jake Bloomgart and other journalists and content producers at the station, which produces shows like the nationally heard Fresh Air with Terry Gross. The workers had filed a petition to join SAG-AFTRA and asked for voluntary recognition by the station after 80% of the potential bargaining unit supported unionizing. But the station declined to recognize the union, and so they went through with the vote this week. The union was supported by major figures at WHYY like Dave Davies, who tweeted publicly about it, and Philadelphia's Mayor Jim Kenney. In their petition for union recognition, the workers cited, quote, untenable working conditions that they say have led to high turnover at the local media station, which is one of the only growing media outlets in the region. They further went on to say, quote, we want to be able to stay and build our careers at WHYY without sacrificing our well-being, end quote. WHYY is, of course, just one of the latest newsrooms to unionize in an ongoing wave of understanding among white-collar workers that they are, well, workers, and in a pretty lousy climate for media workers generally. We should mention, of course, here the folks at Deadspin who quit en masse this week after the company's private equity owners tried to get the website to stick to sports. So it's worth remembering that these media unions may well have to fight very hard for any gains that they get. Winning an election is just the beginning at the folks at Deadspin, formerly of Gawker Media, and the folks at StoryCorps, who finally got their contract recently, can tell you. So solidarity from us here at Belabored to everyone fighting to stay in the media in these, well, miserable times. The strike at General Motors is over, with 23,389 members voting yes and 17,501 workers voting no on the proposed contract. The strike lasted six weeks, with workers staying out while they voted on the contract. And there was plenty of contention about that deal, though the final vote was to accept it and get back to work. 
to discuss the six weeks of the strike, what it meant for GM, for the United Auto Workers, for the American labor movement, and beyond, we talked to Sean Crawford, a worker in GM's Flint Truck Assembly Plant, and Ruth Milkman, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at CUNY's Graduate Center, and the author of several books, including Farewell to the Factory, and most recently on Gender, Labor, and Inequality. So I'm just going to dive in here. Um, And we actually want to start with you, Sean. Um, Can you tell us about your reaction to the agreement that was passed? Mm. Well, I think to sum it up really succinctly, um, it was a good deal for seniority workers. uh, But for everybody else, it was kind of a bad deal. They got the shaft. Um, So, yeah, you know, people got some money up front, especially those who are seniority. But for temporary workers, people who work in, you know, supplier plants, CCA, GMCH, places like that, or even third-party outsourced uh, workers, uh, they all suffered and continue to suffer under this agreement. Not to mention there's still a a two-tier system, although it has been smoothed out significantly. You know, yeah, there was an initial bonus check, and that's all well and good, but as far as preserving equality for the union and really getting us to where we need to be to take collective action again in the spirit of solidarity and really being united as an organization that really is, uh, has been a big disappointment to me, unfortunately. So I take it you voted no on the contract? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, it was about 43%, if I'm not mistaken, voted mm-hmm. no, so it was pretty close. Um, I think folks were, you know, they were kind of ill-prepared. Um, there was really no preparation or training on behalf of the uh UAW to actually get workers ready for this. You know, they might mention it at a meeting, but there was really no concerted effort um, or any kind of educational campaign to get workers ready. So I think a lot of people, unfortunately, while their heart was in the right place and everyone really wanted to see equality in this contract because GM has been making so much money, uh, it really um, was short of making us equal again, which was my, you know, my deepest hope. Just update us again. Was this your first strike with GM? Um, yes, with General Motors. I The last strike at General Motors was back in 07. I was hired in 08, although I have been on the picket line many times before, not for General Motors. And um, overall, I mean, how was this experience uh, of the strike for you? I mean, did you feel like you did the union, you think, do a good job of keeping people engaged and motivated throughout? Or um, how did it work out logistically for you? And morale-wise, and, and do you feel like it ended when it should have ended? My personal opinion is that it should have it should have been out as long as it took to get full equality for everybody. So it should have been extended until we were able to actually bring solidarity back to this union and eliminated all the vision of tears within the union. But as far as how it was orchestrated, uh, you know, on an international level, on a national level, I'm not exactly sure, but on a local level, uh, I think UAW Local 598 did a pretty good job. You know, we had a lot of Solidarity Sunday events where people were, you know, walking down Vance Lake, uh, which is right in front of the plant. It's, uh, you know, it's a big road, four or five lane road, um, holding banners saying Solidarity Forever. You know, and there was really uh, a showing of, of strength in the, in the local union and from the local community. A lot of people came out and uh, were, you know, given donations of food and time. Uh, the Teamsters came out and, and picketed in solidarity. The local nurses union uh, from McLaren, they came out. They were on the picket line all the time in Flint. Um, even people from the, you know, Fight for 15 and Jobs for Justice came out. And the uh, 
Clinton Detroit DSA came out as well. So there was really a, a very strong showing of solidarity and support from the community. And I think it brought a lot of people together and showed them that we have power as workers still. Um, Ruth, I want to ask you to sort of situate this strike in the history of the UAW at GM. Um, where does this fall in terms of sort of duration, outcomes, um, significance in this history? Well, you know, it's a century long history, so depends where you want to start. But <laughs> the last um, really major strike, which was much more successful, was in 1970. Mm-hmm. And that was relatively successful. The union won a lot of things that they had been fighting for. But the big difference in my mind between that period and today, you know, which is uh, basically 50 years since then, yeah. um, is that the industry has been radically transformed and and has sh- and General Motors itself has shed huge numbers of jobs and huge numbers of plants since that time. So that was kind of the last hurrah of the union at its peak strength. It was before the, you know, price of oil tripled in the 1970s. And it was before deunionization that occurred in the United States since the 1970s as well. That was the decade in which everything really changed. And it was kind of the beginning of a long decline of union power and of union density um, and of employment in basic industries like automaking. So that was like, you know, a completely different time. Um, this strike was 40 days, and I, I think that one was even longer. I, but the main difference was it, the union was striking then from a position of great strength. And today, unfortunately, that isn't really the case. It's a, it was a strike of, you know, from a position of weakness in that the company is closing plants. It is still closing the uh, Lordstown plant, which was one of the issues in this dispute. In 1970, there were no non-union auto assembly plants in the United States. Now there are tons of that. Well, not tons, but quite a few dozens, I guess, owned by, um, you know, automakers based in other countries. None of that had happened yet. So, you know, it's very, very different. So for both of you, actually, there was a pretty significant no vote on this contract. And... Some of the sticking points, obviously, are these plant closures, um, but they were the two-tier system. And we just sort of love to have you both sort of speak a little bit to what these issues are. Um, And, you know, we mentioned that the union's bargaining from a place of of relative weakness now, but GM is doing pretty well in this current moment. So, In terms of profitability, that's true. They have lost a huge amount of market share over the years. Right. Um, so in that sense, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that means that they're hurting or anything, but it is a, has a very different place in the U.S. economy than it used to. Yeah, that being said, I think for me, the biggest sticking point for most of my coworkers that I was on the picket line with, uh, you know, it was all about equality, right? Those of us who are at top wage, um, we're not really looking to make a whole lot more money. You know, we feel we're fairly compensated. Mm-hmm. I know I did, and, uh, you know, I appreciate that the work the union has done to get us up to the wage we're at, right? Because I, I was hired in as a second-tier worker, starting mm-hmm. at $14 an hour back in 2008, and it took me eight years to actually get to top wage. And that was after we even had the ability to get to top wage, because prior to the 2015 agreement, you couldn't even get to top wage as a second-tier worker. And it actually took the Chrysler workers voting down their contract to win us that victory and the ability to get to top wage. And, uh, you know, we've always been told, like, hey, the next contract, you don't get everything in one contract, right? So the next contract is the one that we're really going to push for equality. And I know that's what we were all hoping for. 
Um, you know, Aramark was out, you know, they've been undercompensated. Those used to be jobs that were done by traditional GM workers, and we wanted to see them back into the same agreement. Um, same with temporary workers. A lot of temporaries have been doing it for three, four, five, even six years, right? And that's a disgrace. That's that's uh, not the definition of temporary. And so now they have a three-year pathway to become permanent, but that's only if they don't get laid off for 30 days or more, which, of course, is because right. they're pretty much at-will employees when they're temporaries. General Motors can do it any time, right? Yeah. So the union says they can fight it, but at the same time, I mean, you know, they said that the plant closures that we just underwent were illegal, right? They were non-contractual. And yeah. we see how that ended up, right? Um, so I think for me, the inequality of it and the, the closure of those plants and the destruction of those communities are probably the two biggest issues that people wanted to see remedy. But the strike was went on for a long time. People were missing a lot of paychecks. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what brought it to an end, unfortunately. On the issue of equality, um, I know that, you know, that was the goal of not just you, but uh, a lot of workers who, who went out. Um, at, at the end of the day, I mean, since pretty much all of the entire tiered structure seems to be have been preserved, um, I mean, I guess to have been let down yet again, um, how, what does that do to the, I guess, the morale of the workforce? And I guess, um, how does that make people feel about their union? Um, I don't know what the long-term consequences will be, but um, I mean, do you think there there will be consequences? I mean, will there just be more attrition and more turnover among the tiered, uh, the lower tiers of the workforce? Well, I mean, I think we can pretty much uh, expect General Motors because you know we're not going to have you know expanding profits forever, and when we hit a recession, you know, mm-hmm. General Motors is going to come back begging for more concessions, even though we haven't actually achieved full equality. You know. So, yeah, there might be a little more attrition. Um, I think it just kind of weakens and divides us, unfortunately. You know, it's something that a lot of union officials aren't even willing to talk about because it's so obviously embarrassing and against the ideals of what the CIO unions were supposed to stand for historically. And people know that, you know, so they don't even want to address this issue. But I think that's why it's so important to address because you can't move forward as a group of collective demands and collective power unless you're on the same level. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of temporary workers that are very upset, a lot of second tier workers that are very upset. I mean, while I might top out at top wage, um, when I retire, I don't get a pension. Uh, there's no health benefits when I retire. Uh, my supplementary unemployment benefits are only half as long. And that's despite the fact that, you know, when I get laid off, it's going to be more likely that I get laid off because I'm lower seniority. So all these things kind of come together to, I think, you know, people were expecting more. But then at the same time, the UAW has been undergoing a lot of uh, corruption scandals. So, I mean, some people were cynical right from the start. You know? Yeah, I do want to ask more about the corruption question. But, um, Ruth, I would love for you to sort of talk about, again, that this um, the introduction of temps into manufacturing and the way that the tiered system and the temps have been used to sort of divide these plants. Obviously, this is not just an issue at GM, but an issue across the entire industry. And not even just this industry, it's happening in other industries as well. I mean, it is one, you know, employers have been on the warpath for quite a while, not just in the auto industry, but, you know, they've tried this in the airline industry and various others. One of the things that they have demanded of, um, you know, long-term unions like the UAW is, um, you know, various kinds of concessions, like Sean said, and one of them is the right to hire um, temporary workers or, you know, have a two-tier or in this case, multi-tier mm-hmm. setup. 
And, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the academic literature that this is pretty divisive in terms of how it makes, you know, what it does for morale. Now, GM has never had great morale in the hourly workforce, I have to say. That's what I learned in the research I did. It's, it's been rock mm. bottom for decades. So that maybe isn't quite the same issue as it is in some other contexts. But, but anyway, it's not clear to me that it's worth the um, savings to them in terms of mm. you know, morale means you don't perform as well. And so if people are really angry about this and feeling like it's unfair and so on, it, it's not really in General Motors' interest either in the end. Um, of course, the management doesn't see it that way. So, so this is a trend worldwide, actually. It's not just in the U.S. and it's not just in auto. Many companies are doing it um, if they can get away with it. And, you know, they have a very short-term orientation. So that's this is just one of those. But, but it, it reflects what I was trying to talk about before in terms of just the weakness of the union in this situation, just structurally, you know, I mean, yeah. it doesn't help that those corruption issues, you know, certainly make it even weaker. But but even without that, um, General Motors has a lot of the cards, you know, they have overcapacity. They, they're likely to continue laying people off, closing plants, especially in economic downturns. And that gives them tremendous leverage vis-a-vis -vis the union that, you know, again, in 1970, that wasn't the situation. Yeah. One of the things that I learned in doing some reporting on the temps is just how much the companies pay these temp agencies per worker is almost as much as they're paying direct hires. Right. But they don't want the long-term liability. So already exactly. they've eliminated, like Sean explained, they've right. eliminated some of those by not offering those workers, even when they become permanent, they don't get the pension and healthcare benefits that the you know more senior workers who were never in this situation receive. So that's already saving them a ton of money. And they want the quote unquote flexibility. I mean, you know, they have it anyway. They obviously they can lay people off, but there are, you know, supplementary unemployment benefits and other costs associated with that, which, mm -hmm. you know, they don't they escape all that when they have a group of workers that have no rights, basically. There had been hope that um, in this contract there would be some sort of backstop against more plant closures and perhaps bringing jobs back from Mexico. Um, those things were not really addressed in this contract, um, though there was one plant that they ostensibly are keeping open for um, for at least the time being. But um, by and large, I mean, you know, the Lordstown plant is gone, um, et cetera. So do you feel like the union is kind of helpless in this sense or uh, in terms of just trying to reverse uh, plant closures or, or is there more that you feel like UAW could be doing to fight this because it seems like this almost inevitable trend um, so is it inevitable <laughs> no I, I absolutely don't think it's inevitable and I think uh, it's only inevitable if we continue following the same strategy that we've been following right this kind of like pro-cooperation pro-neoliberal strategy that really hasn't worked for generations now. Um, I think really the solution uh, strategically is twofold, right? And just to paint it really broadly is first we have to expand the reach of the union. The, the, the union is a movement where there's power in numbers and the company is global and therefore the, the labor movement needs to be global in order for us to compete at the same level. You know, the success that we had in the past as a labor movement was because people were, you know, condensed in a similar area and they could develop a similar culture, a culture of solidarity that could collectively push back against corporate greed. And now, because the companies all over the world, we have to have a global culture of solidarity or else we really don't stand a chance and we'll always just be whipsawed against one another. 
Um, and that has to happen both on a, a local level of all different types of workers coming together um, in new combinations, but also internationally as well, because, you know, if, if we don't organize internationally with our brothers and sisters being exploited in the same way, uh, you know, GM will just move production overseas if we make too many games and any games we make will just be, you know, impermanent. And uh, it's not the kind of stability I think people are looking for in their careers. Another thing that I think that's that's worth considering is, uh, you know, what we do with these plants as the company abandons them, right? Because I come huh. from a part of the country where there's tons of abandoned plants everywhere. Um, yeah. At least there was historically before they were knocked down. And I think that we have a golden opportunity here with the you know the progressive wing uh, in, in our politics when we bring up ideas of the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can look back historically and see that you know General Motors, for example took Detroit Hamtramck assembly in part over due to eminent domain. They actually destroyed an entire immigrant neighborhood to build Detroit Hamtramck assembly uh, via eminent domain, right? And so I look at something like that and say, hey, you know, if they can use eminent domain to take private property for their private profit, if GM is just going to abandon us and abandon our communities, we need to have that ability to legally and democratically go in there take these plants and use them to be the engines of the Green New Deal for our economy so we can actually, you know, move to a zero carbon economy and have, you know, a just transition and jobs that, that make people a living wage so they can still support their families in these communities that have been, you know, devastated by plant closures. And there's such a need to transition to that and build, you know, solar panels and wind turbines and electric buses and all these things that we need to get to that point. We could have jobs for everyone in this region, but we yeah. have to, you know, actually have the political vision to make that happen and start developing yeah. a narrative about worker control and, you know, who actually produces the the value in the economy, right? Because without workers, none of this can run. We're the ones that produce wealth that actually allow these companies to become so rich. Yeah. Adding to that, the Lordstown plant, they're talking about putting a battery plant either in there or in the neighborhood, but it would be outside of this contract. And one of the things I spoke to the workers there about was like, well, they're like, we could run this plant. Um, And this is actually connects to a policy that I think Bernie Sanders has put forward, right? Giving workers potentially the right to buy the plant if the company's going to shut it down and say, well, we could build something here. It'd be incredibly that, difficult for workers as individuals to save up that kind of money, but with state help, it could be possible, yeah. We've sort of shifted the conversation a little bit into the political arena, which I think is really right. Uh, but the elephant in the room maybe is Donald Trump, who... As, <laughs> yes. Well, so because he promised to bring back jobs to the United yeah. States from other yeah. countries where they've moved to and to keep Lordstown open and one thing and another. And of course, none of those promises are being honored, but in a way it points to the fact that there is some political leverage. I guess I'm not, I don't completely agree with Sean that it's that there's necessarily economic leverage. I think the whipsawing is made possible by the overcapacity in the industry worldwide, as well as within GM itself. But there are other options which are political in nature, you yeah. know, you could have, um, like the example of Hamtramck that Sean talked about, if the company was given all kinds of benefits when they set up um, that plant in that location, you know, there should be a cost to closing it down. And that's something the community and the government can impose. So that's a different kind of organizing, but I think it's something that 
unions and UAW and other unions too should be thinking about because the old fashioned kind of leverage, you know, it's not what it used to be. But people recognize this problem. I mean, even Donald Trump recognizes the problem, even though he's not doing anything about it. Lots of people are aware that, you know, this is devastating for the communities affected. And so something does need to be done. And, you know, that's the next step. You mentioned it's been done. Well, I was going to say that it's uh, in my world, we used to joke that the last time this was widely discussed, that it was, quote, lemon socialism, as in, you know, lemon like a car that isn't any good or something. Mm-hmm. Um, in that what what often happens in the, the, the only places you see that on any significant scale is when a plant or a company is failing and is yeah. unprofitable. And sometimes workers can get it together to take over in that situation, but they're at such a disadvantage. Right, if it's, yeah reason it closed was that it wasn't that viable to begin with. So that's complicated, you know, and then there is the problem of raising the capital, like Sean mentioned. So, you know, I, I, I'm not against that, but I think it's something that has to be approached with a lot of caution and a lot of background research yeah. um, because often it doesn't work out. And so, that factory plan in Lordstown, getting back to that, I just wanted to okay. say, um, yeah. so, you know, one of the, things that I think the public doesn't really understand about the auto industry is, you know, all the publicity is about the the permanent workers in the assembly plants who do get paid pretty well even now and have terrific benefits and all the rest of it. That is not true in the auto parts sector, it's what that battery plant would be. And so, and not all those plants are unionized at all. If they right. are unionized, they, they have much inferior contracts and much lower wages. So yeah. now that's what we're talking about there. Plus it's many fewer jobs than Lordstown used mm-hmm. to have. So, you know, there's a lot of issues about that option, yeah. but it's probably still better than nothing, but it's not really what right. everybody wanted. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up that point. And especially as someone who's worked in some part supplier plants before, I can say the you know, particularly not the working conditions, not even talking about the lack of wages and benefits, but, you know, some of the working conditions in these small plants that supply the shops are, uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, you'd think that you were, you know, a throwback to, you know, 80, 90 years ago. I mean, the, yeah, you know, they the are dangerous, you know, the, uh, you know, maybe the OSHA will come in and find them. But the fines that OSHA gives them are so mm-hmm. much less than the cost of replacing the equipment. They just take the fines and the workers continue to toil away in these super dangerous conditions. I mean, some of them are, are horrible. I yeah. mean, it, it's, you have to see it to believe it truly. Yeah, those are sweatshops in many cases. And yeah, and yeah it's a very different story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, not that we love talking about this topic, but we did want to circle back around to the, the question of the corruption charges. Um, and to ask maybe a cheerier question on the back of that, you know, with the the leadership of the union in crisis right now, what can be done within the union to maybe use some of this momentum from the strike to think about um, reform and change within the union? Hmm. Well, I think absolutely you have to start with one member, one vote. If the elected leadership isn't elected, you know, we have like a delegate system, right? Right. right now. And it's pretty much like uh, the electoral college, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. There's no real direct accountability. Uh, we don't, it's like an electoral college. It's like you only have one party, right? They don't even have two parties. There's an administration caucus that rules over the, the union. It has since the McCarthy era because of the red scare. 
And uh, there's really been no kind of real democratic competition or dialogue in the union ever since because they solidified the hold of the administration caucus so thoroughly within the union. And, uh, you know, most of the people in the union don't even know who the, the higher ups in the organization are because there's no campaigning. There's no direct elections. Right. Um, these delegates go and half of them are just parties. You know what I mean? It's not really a, a system that keeps the leadership close to the people at the bottom. You know, mm-hmm. They spend more time with with the corporate executives than they do with the actual workers on the shop floor. And, uh, you know, you have to eliminate the middleman and have direct elections within the organization. So, you know, they're accountable to the membership. And I I promise you, if there were direct elections, a lot of the people that are currently in office who were in cahoots with this corruption wouldn't be there. And and these people are, you know, a lot of times in a lot of ways are worse than management because they undermine the very faith and the only organization that workers have to improve their quality of life. So they're doing such a disservice to the, the very spirit and, and essence of what the organization is supposed to be. It's disgusting. Um, so people have to organize and run. Who, people who believe in democracy, who believe in transparency, need to run for office and win. And they specifically need to run for constitutional delegate so we can change the system at the next constitutional convention and make sure we get one member, one vote, and hold the leadership accountable to the membership the way they're supposed to be. Excellent. Ruth, you want to add anything? I mean, you know, it's interesting because as you all know, as everybody knows, there are some unions that are sort of famous for having a long history of corruption. You know, everybody talks about Jimmy Hoffa, who's all this uh, show business about him right now and his new book. But but anyway, those are the, and there are other cases that are kind of infamous. Historically, the UAW was not among those. Right. So this yeah, is not exactly. this is a relatively new phenomenon in the. I'm not saying there was zero corruption, but right. this is on a different scale than we've seen before. And I don't quite know why that is, but um, I also wonder. I'd be very curious to know what Sean thinks about this. You know that 1970 strike. There's a famous book about it called The Company and the Union by a former New York Times reporter, Bill Sarin, and One of the things he says in there is that strikes have a kind of role inside the union, as he called it a sort of safety valve that, you know, workers are often um, frustrated about all kinds of things in terms of how they're treated in the plants and all kinds of other issues. And if they go on strike, they get to express that anger and, you know, sort of act out. Right. And this is good for the union leadership, he suggested, because, you know, it's sort of relieves that pressure. And I wonder if that was part of what was happening here, because as I recall, and Sean, please correct me if I'm wrong, there wasn't a lot of advance planning for this strike. You know, sometimes <laughs> strikes are very carefully planned for a long yeah. time. And when they happen, those tend to be more successful too, all else equal. And this one seemed like a kind of almost a last minute thing. And I wonder if it was related to that. I, I have no evidence. I just am curious what you think and whether anybody, know, I mean, I'm not sure we'd ever know that for sure. But it just reminded yeah, well, there, me of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about like a catharsis. So I think the first thing yes. I would say is, you know, research shows that catharsis really isn't a thing. You know, I mean, if anything, it makes the anger more uh, more pronounced. You know, they get a, they get the opportunity to practice. So I think they need to be careful with that strategy. But uh-huh. no, I, I don't have any real evidence that it was their strategy. I, it just seems like a poss- possibility that that might have been part of what oh, yeah. was in the leadership's heads. This would be I good think a lot of the members are thinking the same way that you are, for sure. I mean, 
you know, and, and like you pointed out, it's there was really next to no preparation ahead of time for the strike. We didn't even have enough signs on the picket line. You know, there was no mass classes or education about how to budget and save money for a strike or what to even expect on a strike. None right. of that happened. Um, but as the contract uh, deadline was approaching, a lot more corruption scandal bombs kept dropping. And it just seemed kind of like a last minute decision. And yeah, maybe it was their attempt to say to the membership, hey, we're still a fighting union. I mean, it changes the conversation too, right? Yeah. Like before everybody's talking about the corruption, now there's a strike, so you can focus on that. Like, I don't know, there, it just seems like there's something there maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Labor Notes actually, um, in the Labor Notes, in the early coverage of it, they sort of openly speculated that it was sort of the Hail Mary pass of the of the union brass, and they're basically like looking for a win. Um, and so they thought that this might have been a convenient way to do it. But it um, seems like a rather crass way to treat a workforce of 49,000 people as a political ploy, right? So. But not one without historical precedent. You know, that's what I was trying to say. Like, and then it was a much larger number of workers back in 1970, like 10 times as many. But, well, then, you know, my, my into all this has been, I've been doing a bunch of reporting on Lordstown. And so obviously one of the things about the Lordstown strikes in the seventies was that the workers there at least felt very much like they, the leadership didn't care about their demands other than for higher wages. Right. Yes, and those were wild. I mean, the famous one, and I think it was '73. That mm-hmm. was a wildcat strike. It wasn't yeah. um, led by the union leadership. So that's a whole different thing. And again, that was before the bottom fell out of the industry. So they had much more leverage at that time. I think oftentimes the, the union leadership will pay lip service to the radical ideas, and particularly in Flint, you know, they kind of pay homage to the the Flint sit down strike and the, the you know the risks that those workers took that were really monumental in many ways and, and gave birth to the, you know, the labor movement in the thirties. Um, but it's, it seems to be, unfortunately, a lot of it is just, it's just rhetoric, you know, and uh, it really does, it does a disservice to the memory of, of, of the sit down strikers and, and what they risked and what they were trying to achieve. You know, they didn't have tears back then. So there's another context, which yeah. is, the other strikes that we've seen in the United States in the last couple of years, mostly among teachers, but a few others in the private sector. And yeah. I think that's sort of significant background to this story too. Yeah. You know, it's sort of a thing now going on strike. And of course it's very, very different among the teachers in the public sector, right? There's not a profitability question. There's, it's Although about- Although still always where the money's gonna come from, right? Yeah, that's true. But I mean, all I'm saying is there's a th- that's another part of the background to this in terms of why it might have ha- might have the leadership might have chosen to take this step is to see you know that everybody knows that this is happening in other sectors and maybe um, it would be appealing to workers to want to be part of that whole trend mm-hmm. um, and some of those strikes have been pretty successful not all but so yeah and that is something we haven't seen for a long time in this country I mean. The big numbers are among the teachers, and I really think that's sort of a different animal than a private sector strike. But yeah. we have some a few in the private sector as well, including well, this one, but before that, the hotel strike last year, and the um, the um, there's been some supermarket activity here and there. So Verizon, the big strike at Verizon. Yes, that's true too. So you know, I, I just think that's another. That's in, in the mix somewhere in terms of why this mm-hmm. occurred at the time it did. 
Well, I think there's kind of a rising of class consciousness in the U.S., and it's, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. You know, I think especially since the Bernie Sanders campaign, a lot of folks have been kind of jumping on the bandwagon and realizing that, hey, you know, we have more in common together than we do separate. So, you know, let's work together towards common goals. And it's really been a beautiful thing watching the strike wave across the country. I mean, it's uh, inspiring. I hope it continues because that's really the only mechanism we have to create a better uh, you know, better life for ourselves and our families. I was going to ask both of you, actually, um, since the Chicago teachers strike and the UAW strike were going on, I guess, kind of simultaneously. Um, and we've seen these two sort of narratives unfold in different parts of the workforce, uh, aside from it being just inspiring overall to see more people out on strike. Do you want to maybe draw some key contrasts between them? Uh, and maybe do you feel like these two workforces might have something to learn from each other? Besides that it's public sector versus private sector, which is pretty important difference, there, there is another one, which is that in the case of the teachers, um, there are there's a third party. It's not just the teachers and their employer, in this case, the city of Chicago or previously, you know, the state of West Virginia or whatever. Um, there's also the students and the families that are involved in the school. And the auto industry, there's no equivalent of that, right? I mean, there is the broader public, like we've already discussed a little bit, but it's you can't really reproduce the sort of bargaining for the common good idea in an auto strike in quite the same way. Um, so that's one, you know, I guess I'm more struck by the differences than the similarities. Um, the one exception to that, it would be the, you know, what economists call the multiplier effects, like in Flint, I'm sure when the plants went, went down on because of the strike, a lot of related businesses were affected and lost business and lost money. So in that sense, there is a sort of, you know, public constituency that's directly involved. But it's really different from, you know, thousands and thousands of students who have nowhere to go for the day and their families who have to, you know. So the Chicago teachers, though, really did strategize with that in mind and try to make some of their demands benefit the students directly and reached out to the community and so on. Um, So that's the lesson, I think, in that, you know, you can't win these things without the winning over the hearts and minds of the public. And it's harder for auto workers. Not only the, the public perceives that they have it pretty good, you know, they have pensions and great health care. A lot of people Some don't have those things. So it's, it's just a much heavier lift, it seems to me, in the auto industry. I think maybe the main thing that they have in common is the need for sector-wide bargaining. You know, it's not just about, like like you mentioned, right, there's a ripple effect in the entire economy. And I feel horrible for the people in the parts plants and, you know, the right. businesses that auto worker wages support and, and, you know, their loss of income during the strike as well. But that's why you have to start organizing as a, as a class-based movement. You know, it can't just be about the auto workers. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons that auto workers, uh, people have kind of a bad perception sometimes of auto workers, right, as we're just self-interested. you got to bring everyone in the community together around these class-based issues because these are our, our whole communities are based on these auto plants and these auto supplier jobs. Um, everyone's got, you know, multiple people in their family that work in some way, shape or form for the auto industry. So like, why aren't right. we working together? You know, and I'm so happy that people like, you know, Bernie Sanders have been bringing up the idea of sector-wide bargaining because we're really all in it together. And it doesn't really make sense to just bargain with one company because they're all so interrelated and we impact one another. And I think unless we're fighting with a collective narrative for the whole, it makes it difficult to build this community solidarity and support necessary to 
when big ambition strikes. And I think that's where we faltered. It's not just about us. It's not just about the auto workers. It's about, you know, the tents. It's about the second tier, but it's also about the community and the part suppliers and, and everybody. Right. And, and I think that, you know, if you look historically, like the ILWU, you know, they, uh, they were founded after a general strike. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful thing that was, you know, and what a powerful force that could be in our communities if we showed that we were that united and how much we could gain. And so I think, you know, the need for kind of a broader vision is maybe the biggest thing that both strikes have in common. Ruth, I wanted to ask you um, to talk a little bit about the research you did in Farewell to the Factory. You mentioned already that the uh, morale at GM has been historically low, but um one of the things that you wrote about in that book was that a lot of these workers were happy to take the buyout and get out of the factory and wanted to do something else. You mentioned Donald Trump sort of promising to bring these kinds of jobs back. I wonder if you could talk about what's changed in the time since you wrote that book in terms of how we think about factory jobs, you know, sort of nostalgically, but also, you know, there is this reality that these jobs are not terribly fun. Yeah. Well, so when I started that project back in, it was really just when the industry was beginning to change and um, when foreign competition, as they called it, I guess they still call it, was, you know, growing. So, you know, in 1979, Chrysler went bankrupt, remember that? And that was sort of the beginning of the unraveling of the old order. So I started my research not long after that. And I thought... I was somebody who participated in the view you just articulated. That is, I thought these were really great jobs before I did the research. You know, they paid a lot of money. These were mostly workers who had not had a lot of education. They didn't have a lot of other great options. Here they had terrific wages, great benefits, et cetera. Um, And I basically thought when I started the project that taking the buyout was a really dumb idea, you know, that they would never be able to reproduce that in the you know, wider economy and the wider labor market, given who they were. And I was wrong. You know, I always say to my students, it's good to be wrong because then you learn something. So here's what I learned. One, um, well, so we did this actually with the local unions cooperation. It's a long story, but that plan had a very strong dissident faction in the union. They voted against the GM contracts in the early 80s and so on. So that was another thing that interested me at the time. But anyway, we got... um, access to talking to people through the union. We got a list of everybody who took the buyout. And I began the project assuming that they were going to regret it, that they were going to have, you know, moved into, moved down a lot economically, et cetera. So we had all these questions. We did a little survey first of all the people who had taken it in that plant. And we asked them, you know, why did you take the buyout? Was it because, for example, you didn't have enough seniority to think your job was going to last? Was it because, you know, you were, I don't know, feeling insecure about the future? Whatever. A whole bunch of questions we had. So the most common answer turned out to be one that we had not anticipated. So we did have at the end, is there some other reason I haven't asked about why you took the buyout? And the main reason people gave was they really hated working at General Motors. Um <laughs> And, you know, we, I was completely unprepared for that. Like, I mean, now I understand it, but at the time, and no language was too strong. I mean, we later did interviews and people would say, you know, if they were black workers, they would say, it's like slavery. Other people would say, it's like prison. Some people said, my supervisor is a Nazi. You know, they they just really disliked (laughs) it. So, so, 
you know, that was just really um, powerful for me. And and then what I came to realize was that these are good jobs economically. Right. They pay well, they have great benefits, they have union protection, but the actual day-to-day experience of the job is not very good. And so why I called the book Farewell to the Factories, these people were like, good riddance, I am so glad I'm out of there. And yeah. they did mostly, there are some exceptions, but the white workers did land on their feet in most cases. They yeah. were relatively young, which helped because there's a lot of age discrimination out there. Yeah. Right. Um, they were mostly in their 30s. They did not have that much seniority. Typically, that's is one of the reasons they were more likely to take it. Um, also, they had been laid off and collecting um, both regular unemployment and supplemental benefits and so on. Almost their regular pay for about a year before the buyout was offered. So a lot of them had started um, other jobs or side businesses. There was a tremendous like about half of them had, were self-employed by that time. And so they had, you know, an income while they were doing that. And they these businesses did not fail the way, you know, frequently the way most small businesses do. I mean, they'd already been through that phase mm-hmm. and they loved that, you know, like it's the opposite extreme of working at General Motors on the assembly line, right? You're your own boss, all that. And, you know, they didn't, it wasn't like they became millionaires, but they did make about the same amount of money on average as they had earned in the plant, admittedly without the benefits. But the main thing was almost no one regretted it. They said they were so glad they had done it. So I was, so that was for me a lesson about, you know, these factory jobs, you know, the good things about them, we could potentially have in other sectors, you know, there's no reason why working in a department store couldn't pay, you know, $40 an hour with good benefits. It doesn't. But in principle, if you unionized it and organized and all the rest of it, just like happened in the auto industry, that's possible to imagine. And in some countries, it's actually like that. Um, so I felt I feel like the nostalgia is appropriate for union protection, good pay and benefits, but not right. really for the jobs themselves. Of course, for that to be true, people do have to have an alternative path. Right. And these workers did. In, you know, this was in New Jersey, not in Michigan, which is huge because there's a lot of other economic activity in New Jersey. It's not a one industry situation. Um, It was also not in the middle of a recession or anything. You know, there were a lot of, they had a lot of advantages and the youth above all. Um, By the way, the African-American workers did not do so well. And they were the only ones I spoke to who regretted it. Because for them, the other, like the regular labor market was much less favorable. Although there were very few of them who took it. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think you summed it up pretty well. Um, uh, there is a lot of drudgery, particularly as you have lower seniority. Uh, you know, those jobs are really hard on your body. Um, a lot of people have arthritis. A lot of people have permanent injuries that they have to nurse, you know, the rest of their life. Um, and uh, sometimes the pathway to a, a job that's easier on your body, mm-hmm. you know, you're not necessarily, it's not even realistic to find a job that you enjoy usually I think your goal is to just find one that doesn't hurt you. It doesn't break you down. Um, you know, cause people, you'll get arthritis in your twenties. Right. Yeah. Doing these assembly line jobs. I mean, you know, and sometimes the hours are atrocious, you know, especially if the plants only running one or two shifts. <clears throat> uh, if they need to increase production, you know, a lot of times they're liable to, not put on a third shift, but work you 11, 11 and a half hours, six days a week, doing the same repetitive stuff. And uh, it, it can be really damaging to one's, you know, physical and mental health. 
Uh, a lot of folks, especially in places like Michigan, where there's not a lot of opportunities, like you mentioned, um, you know, that's the only game in town. And it can be, uh, yeah, it can be really tough. It can be really difficult. And, you know, the, historically what they would say was, well, that's why we give you the high wages and high benefits, right? To compensate you for doing all this hard stuff on your body. But now we live in a situation where the lowest seniority workers, temporary workers, uh, don't even get seniority for three years. And, and they're not even, they're, they're not the ones making that, those high wages. The second tier workers aren't the ones getting all those benefits. So, you know, you really can't use that same justification. It's really the, the lowest, lowest paid people are the one doing, ones doing the, high, the hardest jobs. So that was always true that the less senior people had it worse, although not in terms of pay in the old days. Everybody got paid almost the same. But one thing I found in that factory in Jersey, this is on the inside, not the people who took the buyout. So there was a kind of hierarchy of what were the jobs everybody wanted and the high seniority workers, like you had to be there 30 years to get them. And one of them, which is now outsourced to places like Aramark, was being a janitor. You need yeah. 35 years in Linden, New Jersey to become a janitor in the General Motors plant because, you know, you weren't on the line. It wasn't that physically difficult. You could move around. But, you know, most Americans think of being a janitor as a really terrible, low status, you know, sort of stigmatized job. Not in that context, which tells you, which speaks worlds about what the other jobs were like, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you have a certain amount of freedom. And there's yes. like something that you, you don't understand if you're on, the, on an assembly line, you have no freedom. You right. have to push, push, push. Every second is micromanaged, literally. Right. And you can't take a piss without permission. Mm -hmm. you know? And so as a janitor, you have some freedom. And that's, exactly. a, that's amazing. Yeah. So many people talk to me about not being able to go to the bathroom without permission and how degrading that was. Yeah. And actually a book about it called I love this title. It's called Void Where Prohibited. <laughs> it's not about the auto industry because there are other jobs like that too. I just want to mention one other piece, which I don't know, maybe this is too off topic, but let me just throw it out. Because um, I've been doing some research recently on Amazon and I feel like the Amazon warehouses, the giant ones, are kind of the new version of this story. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, they're not unionized. They have, they're like the pre-union, the, the auto factories were before the union. People have huge production quotas. Um, there's a lot of arbitrary firing. You know, it's, it's really, and, and some of the, some of those warehouses are being built in former factories. Oh, you know, yeah. Closed because they're the perfect space, right? They're, they're big. Yeah. So I feel like even though overall manufacturing worldwide, not just in this country is declining because of the, you know, automation and so on um in that sector as you all know there's enormous growth and mm -hmm. reproducing the worst of that old yeah. without any of the good parts yeah mm -hmm. when i went to indiana to go to the carrier plant and the rexnard plant both of which were shutting down right this was trump's big mission accomplished on either side of the carrier plant was a target distribution center and an amazon distribution center mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were talking about the, the physical damage it does to people's bodies. In those Amazon warehouses, they okay, actually yeah. have painkiller medicine distributed free on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. The company does that. And of course, they're generic. If you want a name brand, you got to buy it yourself. 
<laughs> you have to get that on Amazon Prime. I mean, um, but that's like a, you know, they're they're not pretending that these are, you know, jobs that are healthy for you or whatever. They, it's yeah. like, a, it's right out there. I was going to say, if you go up to medical uh, at a General Motors plant, they do pretty much the same. They're like, oh, you hurt? Well, too bad. This is a manufacturing facility. Here's an ibuprofen and they send you out the door. Mm-hmm. I've experienced that, you know, and that's, uh, right. that's how they treat you. And how you how they treat you. I'm so glad you said that because this is the other thing I learned in that study long ago. People would say to me, you know, Ruth, I, I don't, I know this is a factory. I'm not getting paid to sit on the beach in the Bahamas. At that time it was $15 an hour, which was a lot more money than it sounds like at that time. Yeah. Um, but I don't see why they have to be so nasty. You know, that they could see no economic reason for. You know, they understood that this was repetitive. Mm-hmm. It was boring. And maybe it was dangerous, all that. But so that was a huge concern for a lot of the folks I talked to at the time. I don't know if it's still like that. I assume some of that is still there. Yeah, but. it depends on your supervisor, really. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have uh, a supervisor where you have a little tyrant, you know, a little mini uh uh napoleon or something running your department yeah you're you're gonna have a rough time and i've experienced departments like that before it's uh it's hard to live under that but i've also experienced supervisors that came from the shop floor and they're just like you know they remember what it was like and they treat people pretty fairly um but unfortunately those old those you know those are usually older school higher seniority type you know people who have been with the company 30 40 years and you know they maybe have developed a certain degree of empathy and aren't coming in there with a chip on their shoulders. Um, so yeah, it definitely depends on your supervisor. Well, that place had some pretty awful ones from what I heard, but yeah, I'm sure it varies a lot. What I wanted to wrap up with was um, just a general sense of what, uh, what you think will happen to the UAW in the aftermath of this strike. I mean, the union has been sort of struggling to find its footing and expanding in new areas and, um, and trying repeatedly and um, unsuccessfully to uh, organize plants in the South. Um, do you think that this strike, which was, you know, by most measures pretty big, um, do you think it'll have a lasting impression on the public and what maybe the public's attitude towards either UAW or towards other unions. And um, do you think it might, you know, brighten or maybe <laughs> maybe dim the reputation of the union, um, you know, for the broader public? And that's a question for either of you, but um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love for the strike wave to spread and I would love to see all working people get what they deserve, right? Because that's the only tool we have to really have leverage in the economy is to deny our labor. I mean, that's what we trade for money, right? Our time and our and our labor. And so if we work together, you know, we can make great things happen. So I'd love to see it spread, but I mean, realistically, it remains to be seen. Um, but I do think people are getting a greater sense of empowerment and also a greater sense of cynicism towards their leadership. And, uh, you know, that might be a recipe for, you know, people to, to finally take ownership of their union and realize it's our organization we can make it into a fighting union again if we so choose. And I think that's that's what needs to be done in the labor movement if we are going to survive and thrive. You know, we what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results. So what the labor movement has been doing for the past 30, 40 years has been insane by definition. You know, we need to start acting like a class conscious organization, a movement again, 
in supporting all workers. You know, it's not just about retaining high wages for the people, uh, you know, who have high seniority or, or supporting a, 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 an undemocratic bureaucracy, but it's about a class-based movement for all working people. And, and you know, that's more than anything what I want to see happen is for working people to get justice uh, for, you know, for their, for their labor and for their families. It does feel like there's a lot more public sympathy for unions in general. You know, if you look at like the Gallup polls, the uh, the what they call the approval level among the public for labor unions is at an all time high. So that's hopeful. Um, at the same time, employers have a lot of um, the cards in these fights. And so, you know, that's part of why it's been so difficult to organize the plants in the South, which are, you know, all foreign owned um, there. It's has tried to do that and they have yet to succeed and there are a lot of different you know it's a complicated story but a lot of it is that the way the system works these days um you have to get every single detail right to have any chance of winning because so many of the so much of the power is in the hands of employers and and the local governments that support them right so and national government too of course so anyway, I've learned the hard way that predicting the future is very hazardous business, so I won't try to do that. But I just, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of challenges right. involved in all this, too, much as I love Sean's vision of, you know, what we would like to see happen. Yeah, well, you got to work towards it. You know, it doesn't happen on its own. So I hope, you know, I know you all are good hearted folks, and I hope we can continue working together on this project. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And that was Ruth Milkman and Sean Crawford talking about the GM strike and its aftermath. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG comes from Descent Magazine. It's an essay by Carla Murphy titled, Why We Need a Working Class Media. Murphy opens her essay with a view from her apartment window in her childhood of the Statue of Liberty. It's a familiar sight to most of us, and it stood not only as a symbol of American pluralism and democracy, but also as a kind of media icon. As the embodiment of that famous Emma Lazarus poem about huddled masses, her message was the first broadcast from America to reach arriving migrants in the early 20th century as their ships prepared to dock on their new homeland, and as they entered the unknown, she was a big towering billboard for American values. Fast forward to the Trump era, and Murphy feels understandably unmoored. Still unsure of where people like her fit in, people who remain distinctly underrepresented in the mainstream media. She writes, quote, For some time, I've hoped to be similarly anchored or seen by other American media. Because what is Lady Liberty if not permanent advertising? Social media is an open forum for intergroup voices and disagreement, but beyond, flattened stereotypes prevail. The quote-unquote working class is white male parochial. Quote-unquote blacks appear in relation to oppression as race unicorns, the extremist highestest achievers of any field, or as forever scolds holding white people to account. Quote-unquote immigrants are asylum seekers, criminals, or holders of H-1B visas. Rarely do I see stories by, about, or for people like me, people who are working class and black and immigrant and woman or women identified, unquote. Murphy lays out a vision for media representation in which people in communities like hers see their interests, anxieties, fears, and struggles articulated with authenticity and dignity and are expressed in the first, not third, person. She goes on to acknowledge that while there has been an influx in class-conscious writing and reportage in the post-Occupy era, the media landscape still lacks racial diversity. 
Specifically, she laments the lack of non-white voices in the narrative journalism that has sprung up on the U.S. working class, and this, intentionally or not, leaves the impression that the entire working class, that is the vast majority of this country, is reflected in the voices of the so-called white working class. All one word. The white working class has become a hyperbolic cultural trope, often caricatured and maligned in the coverage of so-called Trump country. And while white workers are continually stereotyped, black and brown workers often are not heard from at all. When people feel underrepresented in the public sphere, they become disengaged politically, and a vicious cycle of increasingly disillusioned audiences and disinterested media outlets leads to a growing disenfranchisement of a huge swath of the country. Murphy writes, quote, The evidence of media's disinterest in actual working-class realities comes as a steady drip. It adds up to a narrative of a disenfranchised, neutered working class charted out for affluent readers interested in poverty or angry populist stories. For too long, we've settled for being written about, but not for, unquote. So how might we change this? Murphy's media vision involves three elements. First, you have to acknowledge the anger of working people and channel the rage and grievance that they harbor as they watch their country's mainstream media celebrate corporate wealth, the cult of celebrity, and the abysmal inequality that helped create such privilege. Second, she writes, quote, we need a view of society and ourselves from the underside of power, unquote. That's a way of expressing the perspective of people who are constantly oppressed by, quote, police with their guns, teachers with their words, social workers with their notes, government workers with their gruffness, politicians with their talk, researchers with their knowledge, doctors and nurses with their contempt, unquote. As an academic, I have to confess that the institutions I work for are often on the other side of that perspective. So I would add that beyond the media, it's critical that all societal institutions become more inclusive and approach their task with less crusaderism and more humility. Third, she writes, quote, the working class must appear in our media as more than a problem to be solved or studied, unquote. So rather than treating working class people as a social scourge or a backdrop to a false narrative about upward mobility in the American dream, why not turn America's huddled masses into more than a foil for a national creation myth of a middle class liberal democracy? Perhaps the biggest myth surrounding the working class as it is portrayed in the media today is that these people lack complexity. They're undeserving of the type of respect for individualism, personal autonomy, and psychological interiority that journalists often reserve for coverage of middle-class anxieties and hopes for the future. The future belongs to workers and working-class communities too, of course, and the promise of the Statue of Liberty wasn't embodied solely in the accompanying poem about charity and salvation. It was that moment of identification when people looked at this abstract figure perched at the edge of the edifice of New York and saw something that they instantly identified with. In a city full of languages they didn't speak, cultures that were unfamiliar, this enigmatic statue made the jagged skyline of Gotham legible to its newest arrivals. Many of them went on to become the first generation of immigrant writers and journalists in the 20th century who gave us the literature of the popular front and the proletarian writers' movement. Today, we have new masses yearning to tell their own stories and searching for a way to inscribe their voices on the landscape of history. While there's plenty of action inside the U.S. to keep us busy, too busy to cover, cover all of it already, there are even larger stories happening abroad as major uprisings are happening in Chile, Lebanon, Ecuador, and elsewhere. To zoom in on one of those for this week, I am choosing a piece called Chileans Have Launched a General Strike Against Austerity by Felipe Lagos Rojas and Francisca Gomez Baeza at Jacobin. The uprising in Chile began, began as a fare-beating protest against transit fare hikes led by young people, but quickly escalated beyond that specific target. 
Though transit has been at the center of many of the recent protest movements, like France's Gilets Jaunes, who notably targeted and set on fire some toll booths, it is just the starting point for protests that spill over into every facet of life. As the authors note, this is particularly true in Chile. Quote, Chile is the original and perpetual laboratory for neoliberalism, with more than 30 years of economic shock policies under its belt, and a steady, low-intensity war waged against the nation's popular classes. The infamous Chicago Boys, the University of Chicago-trained economists who were so influential in spreading neoliberal measures during the Pinochet regime, are still at work, and Milton Friedman, who knew a thing or two about creating widespread crisis as a pretext for suspending democratic mechanisms, remains a key reference point, end quote. It is, of course, telling to me here at Belabored Headquarters that Chile is in uprising while the Chicago teachers are still on strike and both places are key nodes in the revolt against neoliberalism. The authors of this piece continue, quote, this week's uprising is in some ways a reprise of the 2011 mass mobilizations in the country in favor of public, non-denominational free education. Though it seemed then that authorities had successfully defused the movement, it is now apparent that those forces have been gathering strength, working to combat the intensified conditions of precarity, privatization, and dispossession. The conflict unfolding today in Chile against the backdrop of martial law is the expression of a society that has reached a breaking point. Chileans are exhausted. For years, they have been waiting for justice, democracy, peace, and a dignified standard of living. Neoliberal administrations have responded with fragmentation, co-optation, and the technical management of general social distress. And still, in the weeks leading up to the latest crisis, Piñera had the audacity to refer to Chile as an oasis of stability and democracy, revealing his own confidence in the face of the country's acute political and economic crises. End quote. The unions are key to this struggle, including the call for a general strike. Subway workers and other transit workers unions have supported the protests, as have port workers, and the subway workers union is calling to nationalize public transit. The authors write, quote, In addition to calling for Piñera's resignation, among the protesters' demands are a call for pay rises and cheaper basic services, a 40-hour week, the restoration of union rights and sectoral collective bargaining, the nationalization of both public services and strategic energy sectors, student debt forgiveness, the annulment of the country's private sector pension fund, the cancellation of the odious free market water code signed into law by Pinochet in 1981, progressive tax reform, and a new migration policy. Perhaps most dramatically, the demonstrators are calling for a new constitution to be drafted by the Constituent Assembly, end quote. Since this piece was published, the streets in Chile have continued to ring with lazos, protests where people bang on pots and pans in the streets and from their windows. Videos have circulated showing people performing songs by Victor Jara, a com communist activist who was murdered under the Chilean dictatorship. The government has made concessions, but the protests have not stopped. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on the CTU strike, the protests in Chile, the aftermath at GM, and much more. Thank you again, as always, to Dissent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks, as always, to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And, of course... An extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month 
keeps us going and gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership or about our Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a striking teacher or coal miner, an auto worker or a journalist. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 